It's been one of the most difficult, painful things here in Brighton. Um, and I don't think um, I've always done it very well because um, particularly around, the, there's a particular generation, I would say, my children are almost in this generation, um, that it's not just same-sex marriage, it's the whole thing around um, gender and identity and everything. And I, as a pastor, that needs to be pastored. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile, here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we sit down with Christians in the public eye and talk about their life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian publication. If you'd like to receive a free copy, go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. On this week's show, I'm in Brighton to speak with Reverend Archie Coates. Archie's the new vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton in London. He's taking over from Nicky Gumbel, who retires after 17 years at the helm. HGV is the largest and most influential Anglican church in the UK. And in this interview, Archie explains how God's giving him the courage to step into this new role, as well as his views on gay marriage. Listen in. So, Archie, you're on the cusp of taking over from Nicky Gumbel at Holy Trinity Brompton, the UK's largest and some would say most influential Anglican church. How does it feel? (laughs) Well, um, it feels exciting and daunting. I think that, um, you know, uh, what's that phrase? Uh, Standing on the shoulder of the giants. Um, Because obviously Nikki, but then before that, Sandy Miller, who actually I trained um, under, um, and uh, Nikki. So you think, goodness, um, you feel it's an amazing honour um, and quite a responsibility um, and a little bit daunting, but um, we feel called, my wife and I. So. Yeah, they certainly are big, sh- big shoes to fill, aren't they? What are your plans for, for HTV in terms of the direction that you're, that you're taking it in? Well, strictly speaking, um, I mean, the, the job starts um, sort of now now. Um, so it's sort of, um, I, have, I think I need to kind of have some time to have a look at everything and get my feet under the table and, and see. But I think broadly, um, there's no doubt that the vision stays the same, is to play our part in the evangelisation of the nation and the revitalisation of the church and the transformation of society. And that actually, that's what we've been doing in Brighton these last 13 years as well. So I think it's a continuity. Uh, but at the same time, or and at the same time, I love the quote by the theologian Helmut Thielig, which says that the gospel um, needs to be sent to a new address in every generation because each generation is asking different questions about the gospel. And um, I suppose that's true. You know, the vision of the gospel stays the same, but in every generation, one's trying to... Or Jonathan Edwards said, you know, it is for every generation to discern which direction the redeemer, sovereign redeemer is moving and to move in that direction. So it's kind of continuity, but also just trying to listen to the Lord for the next season as well, I guess. Can you talk to me a bit about what that looks like for you? So what, what is God saying to you at this time for this next season? What way is the spirit moving in, in your view? Well, I, you know, I sometimes I'm hesitating because I don't want to presume um, before I've properly um, had a bit of time at, at HTB. 
Um, but I think that uh, the priorities are and always will be uh, for me uh, around evangelism, you know, proclaiming good news and care for the poor. Um, that strikes me as pretty central. Um, sometimes I think of churches being more like a, a mission station um, towards those things, particularly. Uh, and I suppose there's something that God's been speaking to me about. Uh, it's probably around London. Um, I was brought up in London and have a huge sort of heart for London, which is, of course, a massive, diverse city. And um, I was struck by it because um, many of the churches that we've planted from HTB over the last years, including Brighton, I'm always struck that how the leaders, when they talk about being sent out by HTB, um, they always talk about the vision that God's given them for their city, you know, be it Brighton or Plymouth or Bournemouth or Preston or Wrexham. Uh, they don't talk so much about the church they're going to be. They talk about the city that God is calling them to. And uh, I suppose, you know, HTB's city is London. And so I think there's something about having um, a vision for London um, of course, HTB has a, a national profile, uh, but I think there's also something about London. And um, one of the things that probably excites me about that is the diversity um, of London, but also is increasingly represented now at HTB itself. And uh, I think that's amazing. Um, if you can have a church that kind of reflects in every way, racially, socially, um, intellectually, the, the, the culture that it's in or the city that it's in um, and really be a mission station for that city. It's interesting you talk about diversity because I guess the leaders of, of HTB have traditionally come from quite privileged backgrounds. What does that look like then as somebody leading a church full of diverse people when um, you are probably in the top kind of strata of, of privilege in terms of what you come from? Yeah, I was really aware of that. Um, I think everybody was, actually, uh, my appointment. Um, you know, I don't know if <laughs> there was a kind of rolling of the eyes. So here we go. Yeah, here's another um, middle-aged, middle-class, white male. Um, I mean, I am who I am, and I feel called. And I think, I hope, um, the church feel that I felt called, which is why I've been appointed. Uh, but I'm sort of aware of that. And maybe the extra awareness of that um, kind of could help me in some ways because it it means that I'll need to I feel like I'm coming from a little way back and I'll need to really um, have that antennae on in terms of and what Nikki's done um, is amazing in the last few years in terms of because it's not diversity um, simply in representation we all know that that's it it's in diversity in, in leadership that's the critical thing and particularly um it's the leading in the HTB network of diverse leaders, and we're not there yet. Um, so I think I feel that's one of my. Um, I feel that's on me actually. I feel really excited about that. Yeah, how it's one thing to um, onboard people into leadership um, of, who, who, re- who represent diversity, but how do you train and release and sustain that in leadership, real leadership, round the table? Um, that's the bit that I think um, is to come. And how do you equip yourself with the knowledge of how to do that? Is that something you've learned while you've been here at St Peter's? Is it through reading books from diverse uh, authors? H- how are you going to approach that, that problem? 
I confess um, that probably like um, others, um, you know, the uh, March, um, uh, so the, uh, the spring of 2020, the George Floyd murder um, was a real wake-up call uh, for me. And um, it became something that, um, it was like holding a mirror up uh, to myself um, and to my way of leading in church. And you know, what's really interesting is um, I think some of my approach or training um, had been about when you find leaders or bring them on, you're looking for kind of character and competency. And one of the things is chemistry. And um, I've always felt that was very important. And I realised that you know, the chemistry that I'd gone for was basically, if I'm honest, people like me. And then I, someone told me, actually, of course, when you do chemistry at school, you often put two things that were actually very different and it produced a chemical reaction, which was much more wonderful. And um, so I think um, even in the last... Um, I, I feel like I've, I'm learning fast and need to learn a lot faster. Um, but I've seen, um, for example, we have um, a church warden here at St Peter's um, who's Nigerian by background. And um, I just noticed that we have the richness of the conversations that we have and the way that we lead the church together over the last two years has been quite different and, I mean, beautiful, but also far more effective. Um, and um, so I, I, think, I think primarily the answer to it is I think it's listening to people. Um, but it's got to be a bit more than listening. It's sort of listening into action, um, and then and reading, as you say. You know, I'm, I've, uh, I am trying to read reading um, near white supremacy and, and different things. Um, I've been I've been helped by, but I think it's primarily making sure that I've got people in my life um, around me who talk to me and say, you know, it's not good enough, Archie but also to actually help me, um, educate me, push me, prod me, um, encourage me, yeah. You were associate of the Career HTV uh, between 2005 and 2009. So in a sense, it must feel a bit like coming home. Was it always the plan that you would go back to London? No, not at all. Um, I mean, we loved our time at HTV. We were there um, six years. Um, I'd done a curacy in Guildford Diocese and then uh, Sam, my wife and I were invited by Sandy Miller, who was the vicar there uh, at the time, um, whether we might just come for six months or a year with a view to planting from HTB in London. So that's why we went. And then when we'd been there um, just under a year, uh, we, Sandy sent us off to look at a church in East London where we might plant it. And uh, when we got there, I remember Sam burst into tears and we just didn't feel it was us at all. But we were sort of a bit nervous to say to Sandy because, you know, that was why we had come. And we felt slightly rescued because uh, at that time, Nicky was just taking over from Sandy. This is back in 2004. Uh, and he said to Sandy, you know, would it be OK if Archie and Sam stayed um, for a bit longer to see me through the transition? And uh, so we ended up staying. And you're right, I was associate vicar. We were um, there uh, six years um, until we ended up planting in Brighton. So when we did that, we really felt um, called to Brighton. My wife is Sam's from Brighton. And um, we didn't think we'd be heading back. We absolutely loved, still loved 
what all that we do here. We love living by the seaside. We brought up our children here. Uh, so it was a real surprise to us um, uh, a year ago almost um, when we were approached uh, for, for the role and we had to think um, long and hard really as to whether and how and if God was calling us. And how did you come to, to make that decision? How did you become, how did you gain clarity on that? Uh, calling is <laughs> not an exact science. Um, I think we began by, um, I mean, I don't think you should do a job um, because you feel like you can do it. And, you know, you're going to smash it. <laughs> um, I think you should only do a job because um, you feel God's asking you to do it. Um, you feel called. Uh, so I think, first of all, just separating out um, that it's not just because um, HTB and the leadership there have asked us, it's, it's actually um, it's God asking us to do that. So we do what I think probably everyone does, thought and prayed, and you draw up a list, don't you? I do anyway, sort of pros and cons, and um, you have a reality check, and it, it takes some time to talk to one or two close friends. And when ultimately, um, as I said, the, the vision that we feel called to in Brighton is the evangelised, playing our part of the evangelisation and revitalisation and transformation. And we've been so blessed to be able to do that in Brighton over 12, 13 years. And this feels like the next step of that journey. And how amazing um, to be given an opportunity um, to do that in a kind of capital city place of um, potential uh, influence and, and reach and um, I think the other thing is just personally um, it's wonderful to have an opportunity to be forced to really be stretched again yeah I, um, when I say I'm daunted I feel properly daunted it'll make me makes me rely on God again and be on my knees again and um I think in the essence that probably is what Christian leadership is. So opportunities to be able to do that, um, um, I think it's good to take them if you can. It sounds like you were a bit reluctant to, to move from Brighton. Would that be fair to say? Um, we planted um, the church in Brighton with friends. Um, there were about 25, 30 of us came down. And um, they're friends for life. Our children have grown up together. And um, they all remain here. Um, so it feels a wrench to leave Brighton. Um, so not reluctant in terms of the role, um, but <laughs> it seems to be quite a lot of people move out of London to places like Brighton. <laughs> and when they come, they don't really stay. It's a lovely city. Some more cynical people would say it's a good career move. Now I'm thinking of some of the very high profile um, Anglicans that are connected with HTB. Uh, notwithstanding um, Archbishop Welby. Do you see your your ministry going in that direction? Oh, no, not at all. Um, I think, been, I think it's, the, it's the last thing I'd like to do. I mean, I, I like, well, I, I feel like, I don't know I'm best at, but I like leading a local church. Um, I mean, I, I think people who do um, all the wider stuff are, are amazing, but it's not my... I don't think it's my um, thing particularly. Uh, so no, I, do, I, I, I certainly don't think in terms of career either. Um, but um, we love 
um, we love people at the local church. And um, what I really love is um, kind of releasing potential in people. And um, I can't think of a better way to do it than being a vicar of a local church. Um, so that's really our heart. When you say the vicar of a local church, it sounds like you, you, you're the leader of a tiny little congregation in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, let's be fair, you've built this St Peter's up from virtually nothing. You know, it was going to be de- deconsecrated to a thriving community now in Brighton. Not only have you got a thriving community, but you've then planted out into other churches. So you, you have really had quite a lot of success here. What is the secret to that? I um, kind of wouldn't presume to know in a sense, but I, um, I think, I think that um, you know, there's some human, if you like, things. Team, we've been very blessed with um, a team who've stuck with us through thick and thin. In fact, the um, people that we planted with um, have stayed with us. That longevity of service has been amazing. Um, I think um, having um, people around us and opportunities, but I think probably the biggest factors um, are um, the partnership with the uh, Church of England in this region, so the Bishop of Chichester particularly. So um, he's opened doors. I mean, it was a a bishop who invited us to come, and it's a bishop who said, you know, what about this opportunity or this opportunity? And um, I've simply... Um, I remember when we came, um, I remember sort of saying to God, look, if you open a door, Lord, I, I will try and walk through it. I won't try and bash doors down that aren't being opened. But if there's a, a door that's ajar, then I'll, I'll do my best with courage to step through it. And that's really all, all that we've done. Hasn't been some marvellous um, strategy. Um, hasn't been... Uh, but. Um, somehow beyond our imagination, God has blessed us. Yeah. Well, it's a very humble response, Archie, but uh, Nikki Gumbel, your uh, predecessor at HDB, or soon-to-be predecessor, mm. um, calls you an outstanding leader. What does outstanding leadership look like to you? Well, if I um, take that question and um, depersonalise it, um, leaders that I think are outstanding and admire. Um, of course, there's a buzzword around integrity at the moment <laughs> in every field, so I think that's important. Um, I think that today's leaders, and please, please, I don't presume to be any of this, but I know, I think that there is um, a strong need at the moment for, I was going to say empathetic leadership. I think that I've noticed that particularly coming through and out of the pandemic. Uh, the ability to try and um, sense what people are feeling and thinking. Of course, there's such a spread of that. Um, there's that element, I think, now of, of pastoral leadership in the church that is really critical. Um, I think it's not that it's not uh, vision-led and leading with strength and confidence, but I think if it's all um, pronouncements from a platform, I don't think that's going to cut it in this next season. It hasn't probably for a little while. So I think it's some, uh, I think outstanding leadership is able to hold both um, a vision and also be proximate um, to people and try to thread those things uh, together. And then I guess there's the usual, all the things, you know, 
uh, discipline and um, keeping close to God and listening to people and um, courage and then endurance, um, all, all those things. It's interesting you talk about platforms because I did want to ask you about this. We've seen in recent years quite large scandals in terms of uh, large-scale ministries and churches. You're, you're now going to be taking over a very influential church in London. How do you guard against some of the, the temptations that come with greater platform, greater power? That's a good question. Um, I think first, uh, an awareness of, of those temptations, and particularly around power. Um, I think that um, I think there is a way of. Um, I've actually just um, finished reading a book called uh, Subversive Witness, and it talks about um, you know, biblical characters who have power and leverage it um, to bring up um, those who are without power. And um, I think that's one of the roles of power. In other words, power is not, it's not for oneself. It's, it's, it's to be very, very gently and carefully handled in order to bring up it. So you think, um, so one of the examples I would use is, for example, um, uh, Pharaoh's wife, who who finds and saves Moses in a basket. She, she uses her, her position, her power, in an extremely subversive way um, when, you know, it was killing all the babies. And, and I, I, so I think there's something about being aware that there is a power dynamic. You, you, you can't help it, but how are you going to use it and um, not abuse it? Um, I think then... Um, Serious reality checks um, all the way through. Um, so people who uh, also to speak truth to power um, and make sure uh, that you don't get isolated from people speaking truth. And also, I think there's always a thin end of the wedge. You know, something starts quite innocuously, but the pattern or the trend of that can take you to can do bad things. So I suppose those, those are the things. I'm blessed with um, a wife who keeps me very down to earth and teenagers, mostly, um, who also do, and good friends um, who laugh at me and um, to whom I'm Archie um, and nothing, nobody else really. And I think making sure that I'm with them lots will help. Archie, what would you say your personal strengths and weaknesses? Oh, a good question. Um, I think my um, strengths are, um, I, I really believe um, God can do all things. And um, I, I expect him to. You know, I, 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 I expect in my generation that um, every day that he, more breakthrough is coming, um, renewal, church um, so I sort of I, I, I have a high um, expectation of what God I live and I feel like I live with that and um, I'm not um, I'm blessed with not easily being sort of down on that I mean everyone goes through their moments but I, uh, I'm blessed with a uh, maybe That's a temperament yeah that bounces back so <laughs> lucky um, you yeah um, I think my um, my weaknesses um, uh, are, are many, 
But um, one of the things I've noticed in myself is I have a um, quite a high uh, view of what I call the sovereignty of God, um, that you know, God's got it. And that, I suppose, keeps me from worrying or from panicking. That ultimately, I really do believe you know, Jesus is risen from the dead and he, he's got it. Um, the flip side of that is that um, sometimes it can make one not drift exactly, but the good thing about having a high view of the sovereignty of God is you, you're happy to leave it to him to work out everything. The, 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 the shadow side of it is you sometimes don't always have an urgency to take action. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, and I noticed that occasionally in myself. Um, I'm very inspired with, uh, I think Nikki has a really good balance. Nikki has a kind of, um, Nikki Umber has a kind of urgency about him. Um, and I think I could sometimes do well to pick that up um, because it can lead to a passivity otherwise. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think that's one of my weaknesses. Um, <laughs> do you want some more? <laughs> um, I, um, but those probably be my, that would probably be the main problem. The one that comes to yeah. mind, yeah. It's interesting because you talked in the past about being a bit of a wimp. <laughs> I wonder if that links at all with the passivity characteristic you were describing. Um, but I guess I'm sort of looking at you thinking, this is someone who's about to step up and lead a congregation of 4,000. You must need quite a lot of courage and um, get up and go to do a job like that. I think that um, uh, one has to separate out um, kind of who exactly is doing this thing. Um, what I mean is, uh, of course, um, it takes great energy and, and hard work and perseverance, persistence and uh, I'm not afraid of that. I, I rather enjoy those um, those things, um, but also um, look, hard work it ain't going to do it um, in the end. Um, prayer and fasting will. I suppose there's some effort required there, um, and uh, but in the end, it's it's God's work, and so I think what makes one. If it's all down on me, then uh, that's a pressure I can't bear. Um, If it's not down to me, then actually that, funnily enough, that makes one more courageous and more fearless because you think, well, I've got nothing to lose. I'm still a child loved by God. He still died and rose for me. So I've got nothing to lose. I might as well um, take a swipe at something and have a go. So I think it comes from that place. So it sounds like you have a really strong grounding and understanding of the grace of God, which is fantastic. That's what you kind of want from your leaders. But where did that come from? Was that just a gift that you were given? You have a, just a strong gift of faith. Is it? Did you have great discipleship and teaching as a young boy? What, what do you sort of attribute that to? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I think I do. I think I do have that. I I. I know that I'm, I'm deeply loved by God and that when, he, when I meet Jesus face to face, he's going to, he just wants to go, he's going to say, did you love me? He's not really so fussed about the job I did or anything. And I, I, I do have that. I was brought up by our wonderful Christian parents. Um, and we used to pray um, every day before my father went off to work. When we were little, we had to have breakfast together. I, I'm, I'm the youngest of four children, and we had to. We, we knelt at our chairs around the dining room table, and um, 
we didn't have to pray out loud. Um, he did that. But it um, instilled in me um, uh, a daily walk with Christ. And um, when, you know, if you do that for intermittently or here and there or for a year, but then give up, then it probably doesn't have such a deep impact. But if one's been blessed like I have to be able to do that over um, 40 plus years, um, it begins, I think, to bear fruit. And it's that fruit that I think in my life it's really born. It's a deep sense of being loved by God and, and his grace. And then I've also been hugely blessed, um, you mentioned discipleship, by having um, friends and I think the word today are often mentors, but people who've inspired me and people who've um, spotted and encouraged me. I haven't um, been told off that much in my life, but I've been sort of encouraged a lot. And um, I think that does, I think that's been amazing. I've been really blessed to be on the receiving end of lots and lots of encouragement and forgiveness and grace myself. Was encouragement something that you needed, do you think? I think that, well, I think everybody needs encouragement. And um, yes, uh, I think everybody needs encouragement because um, literally it means obviously to put courage into somebody. And um, I don't think, I don't think you can have too much of it. Um, it's like um, someone has, um, it's like has raw material or is raw material and the encouragement sort of um, I think shines and heat and light on it and helps it to grow um, that's what I love doing with other people is trying to sort of spot and draw out of them um, their God-given potential um, I like taking risks with people in that sense um, because I feel that's what I was on the receiving end, and, and still am on the receiving end. I mean, look at this. <laughs> uh, people take a risk on me, uh, and I really like that. You, you mentioned being inspired by people uh, in your, through, your, through your journey, through your Christian walk. Who were some of those people that inspired you? I had a, um, three years after I left. Uh, I, I left university. I, I read English. And then I had a year working in what I thought I wanted to do, which was business, um, it was selling. And um, it was um, something of a miserable year, actually, for various reasons. But I um, had an invitation from uh, a vicar called Jeremy Crossley, who's in, who's in, uh, just planting a church in Pimlico in London at the time. And he said, look, why don't you come and be my sort of intern or... I was 23, 24 at the time. He said, I, I haven't got money beyond six months, or, but I, why don't you come and um, you can help lead the music and help run Alpha. And I decided to do that. Um, in some ways it gave me a slightly get out of jail from where I was, I wanted. And um, I flourished there. I was given by him so much, not only encouragement, but... Um, things to do. It's where I first gave a talk. It's where I first was given the opportunity to lead a group. Um, and I think I, I, I flourished under his encouragement mm. and laughed a lot as well. And it was really, really fun. And I'd never thought of um, going off to be ordained or be a vicar. It wasn't, it wasn't just something that was on my 
my plan at all. Um, but after I'd been there three years, I thought, I'll see if I can get back into business. And I went to have an interview. I don't know whether I would have been able to, but I went to have an interview. And I remember literally sitting in the interview, kind of trying to answer these questions about this company or something, and thinking, do you know what? There's thousands of people who could probably do this job. But I think I found what I meant to do. It's not this. And so I went, that way we talked earlier about reluctance. I did go a little reluctantly to theological college. Um, I wasn't quite sure about that. Um, but I thought, well, look, I, can, I would like to go and study theology. So I can sort of do that bit and then we can see. And then after theology, it seemed a shame not to sort of put something back so I could do a first curacy, which, as I mentioned, I did near Guildford. Um, and then I can think. So it took me a little while to get my head round. Oh, uh, I really am called to be <laughs> a reverend. Just talking about HTB again, you know, I think some of the, and, and your work at St Peter's, I think some of the criticism of church plants connected to HTB is that they have a lot of resources behind them. Um, they're quite flashy. They really make an impact. It's, you know, a lot about the visuals and the aesthetics. But actually, they just attract other Christians from around the, you know, the, the other Christians that really other congregations can't afford to lose, you know, young Christians. Was that the case with St Peter's? Who, who are the sort of people that come and fill the pews here? St Peter's grew uh, rapidly in the early days, and that was always, you know, our, our fear, and you're right, um, a narrative that that might be what's happening. And what we discovered was um, it grew primarily with what I think people call de-church people. So people who um, had maybe done an Alpha course, um, had maybe been, been going to a church, but had stopped uh, for whatever reason. And when we opened the doors here, it was like they thought, I don't think they thought this church would be better than the ones that we left. I think they thought, here's a op- fresh opportunity. You know, I ought to be going to church because I have a, a faith somewhere. But it's hard for me to go back to where I was um, because I'm a bit embarrassed to do so. But here's a fresh start where I'm anonymous and can just, yeah, with no sort of back story. Um, Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a good thing that they're going somewhere. I happen to think, actually, the same thing is happening a little bit now, um, post-pandemic. I think in the pandemic, people stopped going to church And I don't think they will all come back to the churches that they were at previously. I think there'll be a kind of shifting. Um, So I think that that happens. Um, Did people join from other churches? Um, Well, I'd be lying if I said no. I mean, they they did and they do. I I don't know what one does about that because um, I know what I did. I had the conversation with each one of them and said, please don't. Um, you're needed in your local church. Please don't just come here. And uh, but but in the end, w- what I noticed was there were two factors that were very hard to argue against. Um, one was their children. You know, absolutely. Um, I feel called to serve in my local church, but for the sake of my children, we must go somewhere where there's a children's church. And many of their local churches said there were were not. And the other thing was I realised that um, I would sort of send people back to where they were or make it very clear that I didn't want them. But in the end, um, I realised they, they didn't then go, oh, of course, yeah, no, no, we'll, um, we'll, 
will quite happily go back. Thank you, for, I didn't thought of that. They, they basically just didn't go anywhere. <laughs> so then in the end, I thought, well, it's better they go somewhere than nowhere. So I think that happens a bit. Anyway, the relief was, because no one plants a church to attract other Christians. I mean, that would be a massive own goal. Um, but we started growing again quite quickly after a month or two with new believers. Um, we did an alpha course. I think we did an alpha course. Um, we did a truncated one because if I remember right, we started in November 2009. And uh, we did a sort of little four-week alpha to get us in before Christmas, just in the cafe across the road. And I uh, always remember there was only a handful of people, but it was like a kind of stake in the ground for us to say, you know, we're a mission station. And um, one of those came to faith. Uh, and so that got us going um, so that our testimonies became, you know, stories, not that we were importing, <laughs> but one we had. Uh, and then the other thing that happened, like it was on the um, first week that we were here, uh, there was... Um, a girl who was a young woman who was 24 called Mel, who was found on the doorstep of the main doors of the church. And she'd uh, taken a uh, drugs overdose and had died and she was there. And um, she was quite well known in the street community. And uh, we would literally just work just opening. So as a sort of vicar, I came down and we, um, we, talked to her family and her key workers and her friends in, on the streets and offered, or maybe they asked us to do a little Thanksgiving service for Mel. So that was almost the first thing we did actually when we opened. It was about um, 20, of, 20 of her friends and family and 20 of us in the church who had just started. And then we had lunch together. I remember someone had brought um, made cupcakes with a little letter M on each one. And so we had lunch together. It was a beautiful time, uh, very emotional, as you can imagine. And then when our guests had gone and we'd cleared up, um, Sam and I, we, we sat around with our community and said, you know, let's not wait until the next one dies before we open the doors to the church. And so we began a, a meal for the street community called Safe Haven, uh, which operates pretty much every Saturday evening. And um, from that, again, people who were not going to church anywhere uh, began to come. And they came not only on Saturdays, but they came sort of all times of the week, uh, including Sundays. And that shaped us as a church. And um, it didn't become a project that we were doing to people. It was something that was just us. Uh, and so um, I think those things really helped us in the early days have a flavour that we were, as I said earlier, a kind of mission for our city, rather than try to grow a church. Mm. I think there's a difference there. You shouldn't plant a church to build a church. It's a blessed city, is what I think of. What you want is for people to notice. It does Brighton notice whether St Peter's is open or closed? I think that's the, the big question. If it's shut now, would it make any difference to the city? Um, that, I think, is the million-dollar question. Talked a little bit about your early life, Archie, but can you tell me tell me a bit more about your family, uh, where you went to school, where you grew up? Tell us a bit about who you were before you were the vicar. Uh, as you know, I was I say one of four children, um, brought up in Bath. Um, my father was a head teacher. Um, moved to London, Central London, when I was thirteen. 
um, went to a boarding school. <laughs> and, Which um, boarding school? Uh, one called Marlborough in Wiltshire. Um, and I um, had a faith from an early age. But like anybody, I think, who has grown up with faith, um, you don't want to do it just because your parents did. Uh, I was... Um, I feel bad to say it because it was an incredibly privileged um, upbringing, but I was very, very homesick uh, when I went to boarding school. Um, I mean, desperately so, uh, to the extent that um, the school wondered really whether I, I could cope or whether I shouldn't um, be sent back home. And um, uh, it was rather surprising to me. I didn't, I didn't expect to have that sensitivity. And it, was, um, it lasted for a really long time. It wasn't just sort of the first um, term. It was throughout my whole first year and even a little bit beyond. And I, um, uh, what it did is it um, made me rely on God and my faith. Um, I had an older brother who was a year above me and he was so kind um, to me. So the combination of him and um, the Lord... Um, and that's where I found my faith. Wow, um, thank you for sharing that story. You, I can see that you're getting emotional even thinking about it. What was it you were struggling with? In what ways was the Lord so gracious to you? I had a very, very loving home, and I'm not to say, not to say that the school wasn't wonderful, um, but um, you feel exposed. You know, you, you, you kind of... Uh, I think the word I use is um, protection. And so you either protect yourself through, um, you know, building up an, an image of yourself or being good at something or impressive. Um, but I found that the Lord was my protector. Um, and I think um, uh, I learned to rely on him. I hope you don't mind me asking, but was there bullying involved? No, I wouldn't say there was bullying, but I was a shy, I was a shy teenager. And um, what I noticed was um, uh, God gave me confidence. Um, and, you know, it wasn't my confidence for some teenagers. I think, uh, you know, nothing wrong with it. It comes through being good at something um, and it builds your self-esteem. Um, but my sense of self-esteem and confidence and I would say identity, I think looking back was driven into me um, by that, almost by that year of being 13, 14 years old. Really, what you're saying is the man that you are today, full of confidence, able to stand up in front of thousands, speak on a stage, lead a huge church, plant churches, all of that came through that sort of crucible year of difficulty and struggle and having to really rely on God to to find your sense of self and sense of well-being and sense of peace. Am I understanding you right? I think so, because it's confidence in the Lord. Um, it's confidence in knowing that uh, I, I discovered that I was loved, I'm loved by him and that it's not that, you know, nothing else matters, the hell with the rest, you know, it's just me and God. Um, but it um, that, that's, a that's a confidence that comes from from him loving me unconditionally. 
rather than a confidence from coming from doing something well or bad. Otherwise, I couldn't cope. It would be just too much of a roller coaster. Because what if um, what if the church doesn't work? You know, what if HTB shrinks? Um, it might do. What, what if you, know, you have to find some way of feeling called and confident in the Lord rather than in... You have to put some separation um, between who you are in God and what you do for God. So I think that was probably um, what happened to me. That uh, all gave me the foundations for that as well. Your focus at St Peter's has been to the most deprived, as we've talked about. It's been a big part of what you do. You're going from that to pastoring some of the very wealthiest in London. Do you see any tension in that at all? I Well, I think um, there is a caricature, but I think it is a bit of a caricature now of HCB as being this very wealthy church. Of course, it is in a very, very privileged, wealthy part of London. But um, the nature, in fact, one of the things that's quite different from when I was there 13 years ago, um, we talk about diversity, but it's diversity in every way, um, socially and, and everything. Um, and I, all I can think is um, that's the sort of beauty of the church. It's, it's a mixture. So I don't think it would be good if it was in silos, um, uh, you know, I think it needs a, a, a mixing of rich and poor. Um, and rich people really need poor people in their lives. Poor people really need rich people in their lives. Uh, so I think that's what I, I have a vision for, and that strikes me as being biblical. Um, if you read Acts, how those with often gave to those without, and in return, those without often educated those who are with. So it doesn't, um, it doesn't b- bother me. Um, I think that, yeah, everybody needs pastoring. Um, maybe um, everyone's um, got human- humanity and sometimes it expresses itself in different ways. Um, but that's what I've noticed, um, whether they're wealthy or not. Do you see any issue with Christians um, having owning a Ferrari, for example, as I'm sure some people do who go to HDB? Do you, do you see any problem with that? Yeah, it may well be a problem. Um, it may not be a problem. Uh, I think it's what um, you know, Jesus sees the heart, um, where, um, where your heart is, your treasure is, where your treasure is, your heart is. You can't worship mammon and God. So, you know, um, so, that's it. so in other words, the Ferrari is potentially a presenting issue, but it may not be an issue, um, as someone without a Ferrari may not be, but they may have envy or jealousy. So uh, I don't think, I think it's difficult to make value judgments purely on, on those visible things. And um, the heart, uh, it's always heart issues, isn't it? I think a lot of people are wondering, a lot of Christians are wondering what direction the church is going in, in particular areas, specifically around sexuality, um, same-sex marriage. I know that, for example, um, the Anglican churches of Wales and Scotland have moved in that more, pro- inverted commas, progressive um, direction towards blessing same-sex marriage and towards officiating at same-sex marriages. Where do you stand on that debate? You're right, the, it's going to come to the Church of England. I think it's slated for synod in the next, probably 2023. Um, I think the House of Bishops are 
as I understand we're talking about it quite soon. Uh, I don't know where that will um, go. I think that, I, mean, I think there's a number of issues, obviously, um, the scripture and trying to work out what, the truth, if you like. Um, this unity, um, which is very, I, I feel is um, important. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's sort of different ways of looking at it. My own view is that um, rather like at St. Peter's, because um, sometimes people ask me, you know, what, what's St. Peter's view on this? Um, which they really want me to say, what's Archie's view? And I generally say, look, um, St. Peter's is just full of a whole kaleidoscope of people, and I'm really glad that we are. We are. Um, and that uh, I can, you know, I, I can give my view. Um, you know, I've, you know, I've reading this and reading that and come to an understanding and all that. But what, what I prefer to do um, is to say to people, actually, I'm not going to say my own view because what it does is it short circuits. Everybody's all oh, right, that, that's what that is. Whereas I want people to be able to be here and find a unity in, in holding different views. And trouble is, my, just because of my role, um, my whisper is a shout. And um, I think what it does is it actually narrows the debate and it narrows people's um, sense of unity and working with each other and wrestling with it for themselves. Um, so pastorally, um, that's what I've done so far. What I've noticed, and this is um, going to be a challenge for me, um, is that what I, when I said that ooh, three or five years ago regularly to people, that was perceived as being, oh, that's a courageous thing, Archie, that you're not going to be drawn on it. And um, some people call it sitting on the fence. I don't think it is that, it, but it's, yeah, I, I understand that. What I've noticed now for that same answer, this is why I think it will be a challenge, is now perceived as a weakness. You know, Archie, you're very assured about some other things, doctrinally, why won't you? And it's beginning to be now regarded as a bad behaviour pastorally you know, um, ambiguity or is unkind, um, lack of clarity is unkind. Uh, so that's going to be a wrestle uh, for me um, as I move to HTB, because again, you're holding a huge variety of people um, and how you keep that sense of unity and um, how you, you produce kind of clarity uh, for, uh, for people. So that's probably where I'm, I'm at with it. So when you talk about being ambiguity, is that an ambiguity in a sense that, that you don't know what you think about that particular point? No, I have a, um, I have, I have at the moment um, a clear uh, understanding of what I think, uh, which I think is always needing to be challenged and wrestled with, uh, but, but I do. Um, and as you can imagine, um, have talked to lots of people over years and read lots of things and weighed and yeah so I do so it's not an ambiguity in that way um, but because I uh, am, am not willing to say categorically a position that Archie has it has a danger of producing an ambiguity now I'm not sure that that's necessarily um, see it strikes me that um, Take a church like St. Peter's. You know, you either pronounce from the platform a whole um, bunch of things, 
this is our view on this, this is our view on this, this is our view on this, in which case you produce a kind of, I suppose it's a kind of unity, you know, we all agree that on the same thing because we all believe the same thing. But I think there's a more beautiful unity that happens here because I know got lots of people who have lots of different views, not only on sexuality, uh, but I can mention quite a lot of other things. Um, uh, obviously, there's Brexit, um, and there's views about the pandemic. And what I love is a whole mulch of people who've decided that, you know, Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, the creed, Jesus is risen from the dead. We're going to unite around the cross, him, and then we're going to continue to discuss and to talk about these things. And um, it's, it's harder in a way, um, but it's more beautiful. Um, and they include my friends. Um, so it's not like the church depersonalised. Um, so I think, that, I think that's where I, I feel about it. If you're taking the position of sort of being quiet about your personal view, well, you've then got a faction within church who's very vocal about taking the church in a more progressive direction. I think Christians are... Some Christians within the evangelical space are concerned that the more orthodox traditional teaching around same-sex marriage is not being, um, people aren't standing up for that, people aren't um, sort of saying, no, hang on a sec, this is what the Bible says. So do you, do you think that there is an issue with, with being quiet about it when there are very strong groups within the church taking it in a certain direction? Uh, I do. Um, I think that... You know, I take my um, responsibility as a pastor um, very seriously. And my um, call job is to, is to pastor my flock. So I think it's really important um, to be, at the very least, to put into their hands um, the things that they ought to be looking up and weighing them, um, uh, rather than sort of telling them I want to help them. So I do think it's really important um, that... Um, that people speak up, um, and they will do, I think, um, in, in every direction. I, just as you can tell, I, I, I have a hesitation about my own voice in it um, because um, there's, there's lots at stake. You know, there's biblical truth, say there's unity, there's mission, there's, there's all sorts. Um, so I think that's where I just need to, just keep on mithering. I mean, I may. I mean, you'll, you'll need to come back in a, um, six months or a year. So, I, I, you know, I, I may. I don't know whether I'll think differently, as I say. But I, what I may do is think differently about um, about speaking uh, on it. Um, but that's probably where I've got to so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's. Um, I say, Megan, it, it's um, it's been one of the most difficult, painful things here in Brighton mm. um, and I don't think um, I've always done it very well because um, particularly around the, there's a particular generation I would say um, that my my children are almost in this generation um, that uh, it's not just same-sex marriage it's the whole thing around um, gender and identity and everything. And I, as a pastor, that needs to be pastored. And just how one navigates that, um, not to kind of, not navigate as to escape through the fire, but to genuinely help people. Um, I think that that's where I feel passionately. Mm. 
And I don't feel like I've always been able to do that. And sometimes what's happened is people um, have walked away. Um, so I sort of feel it keenly, um, how I wrestle with that. Well, it's been lovely talking to you today, Archie. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.